0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bonga Masinga, and <laughs> I will be preaching the word for today. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this word, but it took a lot of, like, trying to prepare for it, so, um, and I've been praying for all of you that as you receive it, that there would be something for you that God would speak specifically to you um, through this word. Um, so I'll just open up in prayer for Father, we just thank you for today, and we thank you for your word, God, that your word comes alive in us through your Holy Spirit, and so I just pray for today, and I pray for this message, God, that it would just dig deep into our hearts, and that you would reveal to us what it is you have for us today. Um, We thank you, and we bless you. We thank you that you are God, you are for us, um, and we're excited to be in your house today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. so much. <laughs> um, okay, so I thought I'd start today's message on a, a lighthearted note, okay? And as a South African kid, when I, when I was a kid in South Africa, I was a big fan of American talk shows, okay? I know. <laughs> so I would come home with my brother, and he would go play outside, and I would stay inside, and I would watch talk shows, the introvert life, yeah. Um, And so I would watch my favorites, and I don't know if you remember these, the first one. (laughs) Do you remember this? Jerry, (laughs) Jerry. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of nostalgia. Um, If you click on it again, it should. Yeah, (laughs) right? Yeah, Jerry Springer. Or how about this one? Next one, go Ricky, go Ricky. Do you remember this one? (laughs) She was, oh, some people here are too young to remember this. And then there was my absolute favorite, right? <laughs> Oprah, <laughs> Oprah, Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey, the queen of the talk shows, right? And so on her show, she would give away these prizes, and I don't know if, uh, well, maybe some of you won't remember, Tom Cruise jumping on the couch. It was just the crazy, craziest show. And um, my favorite segment was the makeovers, okay? Oh, yeah. And so we'd see these studio guests come on and talk about their style and, or if they were lacking style and how it was affecting their self-esteem, right? And then Oprah and her team of magicians, makeup artists, stylists, hairdressers, fitness trainers, the works, would transform them into their very best selves, right? So people would be transformed. And at the end of it, Um, we'd see, like, these life-size posters of people, and then they would walk through. Do you remember this? Yeah? Yeah, (laughs) all right. That was my favorite. And the people would walk through, and we would see them, um, we would see pictures of them, like a couple of kilograms heavier, messy hair, usually not smiling, dressed in their comfort-is-king outfit, and they would jump through they would show us what they look like now, right? They're, I'm gonna use some Instagram lingo. Waist snatched, skin popping, eyebrows on fleek. Um, yeah, so they would come through and we would see their best versions, right? And so I've always had in mind, as a mental reference, that that is what transformation looks like. I always thought that if I want God to work in me, it should look like that. One day I will jump out, and my absolute best self. But God has his own process of transforming us. And it doesn't look like the one we see on TV. C.S. Lewis has a quote about this. Um, The Next one. And, um, okay, sorry. (laughs) Next one. Uh, Yeah, so C.S. Lewis, no? Yep, okay, never mind, sorry, go back. C.S. Lewis has a quote about this. And he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And so God's process of transformation is not like Oprah's, because God's process starts from the inside and the results end up showing on the outside. And so I, I wondered why would God choose to transform us from the inside out and not the outside in, right? And the Greek word for heart is the word cardia, right? Maybe you've heard it. We have Shine, who's a fitness trainer, cardio, cardio workouts, um, or a cardiologist, a heart doctor. And the ancient Greeks, they believed that the heart throughout our body, was central to man's well-being. So they ate specifically to strengthen the heart. If someone was sick, they would check the heart first. And they even believed that the brain and the lungs existed simply to keep the heart beating. So everything was just about the heart. And um, in the Hebrew language, so in the Bible, the Hebrew language, we see the term leb, which, is, which means heart, and it appears 860 times just in the Old Testament. So the heart is important to God, not just as an organ with valves and veins, but as the center of spiritual activity, and it is here where all human life takes place, right? Our emotions, our knowledge, our wisdom, and the heart even describes man himself, his personality, seed of consciousness moral character, the heart is very important to God. So today, um, Ine read for us from Ezekiel, it's a very long passage, and I'm so sorry, um, <laughs> but thank you very much, you read it so well, and I, I hope that you were listening a little bit, because we're going to be looking at the book of Ezekiel today. Um, and so, why do we need a makeover? I want to set the scene for you about why people would need an internal makeover. Why do we need God's extreme makeover in our lives? Um, so, if we backtrack a couple of hundred years, right, from the book of Ezekiel, the people of God, um, or the people of Israel, are God's chosen people, right? This is all the way back in Genesis. And um, throughout Exodus, they begin their journey. So, God. The, uh, moves them from Egypt all the way to the promised land. And um, they are being led by Moses. Okay, so you know this, I hope you know about this. So if you don't, I'm here to tell you about it today. And so they are led by Moses. And Moses is the one who hears from God. And he's telling the people that at every turn, this is what God is saying, and he's relaying the message to them. But God himself, is moving with the people, right? And we hear that he is a cloud by day, he's a pillar by night, and he is walking with these people. And then God gives laws to Moses. The laws were directions on how God's people were to be holy as God is holy. Um, the laws were meant to be a guide, how to live a happy, abundant life. And also, the laws were meant to show the people what was right and wrong and how to live well with God and with each other. And in Deuteronomy 28, he gives them blessings and curses. He says, if you keep these laws, you can either have blessings and if you don't keep the laws, there's curses coming for you. And in Deuteronomy 28, 36, he specifically says to them, this is a curse. This is a curse for you. If you fail to keep the law, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over yourselves, um, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. All right. So, if you fail to keep the law, you will have to live in exile in a nation that is not like yours. All right. And so, they keep going. Moses dies. Spoiler alert. And then a new leader is raised up. Right. And his name is Joshua. But the people continue obeying God and falling short of his law, right? Because the law is perfect, but the people are people so they're not able to keep that law. And then Joshua dies too. And then um, God raises up judges and the judges are meant to help the people keep the law and just to help the land run well. And as long as there's a righteous judge, the people serve God. But soon after a judge dies, the people leave God, go back to their old ways. And when they serve God, they prosper. When they serve idols, they suffer. Israel's troubles were directly related to their disobedience. So, the next step. The people demand a king. They're like, God, if you look around, other nations have a king. We think we should have a king too. And so God relents and gives them king. And for some time, when the king is appointed, the nation is thriving. For a couple of kings, we see that the nation is doing well. The enemies are afraid of them. There's peace in the land. But, of course, that doesn't last for a long time, as most of the kings end up worshipping foreign gods, and they build up altars, right? And then God sends prophets and the prophets have these strong warnings, right? But most of the people, they don't repent. and They don't return to God. And the depths, the depths of despair are reached in the time of King Manasseh. He erects altars to false gods. He sacrifices his own sons in the fire. And he puts an idol in the temple of Jerusalem. And this is just an abomination to God because... Jerusalem is meant to be the holiest place. And yet the king has put an idol in the temple. So finally God says, that's it. I'm going to do what I said I would do in Deuteronomy 28. And they are taken captive and led into another country, which is Babylon. Um, And so this is where we find ourselves in the story. That's where we are right now. We're in They are in another land. They are in Babylon. And Ezekiel was a priest and a prophet. And he was 30 years old at the time. And this is a time when he should have been serving in the temple. when He should have been doing what he was called to do, which is serve. But instead, he's in a foreign land. And I think we can sort of understand a little bit, or those of us who are expats, we can Kind of understand a little bit what it feels like to live in another land, right? Just think of your most homesick day in Korea, right? There's days when we yearn for home, when we want to eat our own foods, right? We want to see our own mountains and valleys. We want to speak our own languages. Um, We want to be reunited with our families. So if you think of that, that is how the people of Israel are feeling. They feel more than that, they feel abandoned, and they feel utterly rejected by God. They're living in a foreign land, and they are, in some ways, forced to serve the gods of that nation. And a few years ago, I remember hearing a testimony from an American pastor who had been in a North Korean jail. And he went through these seasons of like deep despair as he waited American government to intervene, and he thought he would be in jail for a week, a week tops, because he was an innocent man, so the government should have come in and saved him, right? But they didn't. And one night turned into a week, and a week turned into a month, and a month turned into two years. And he was in the prison waiting, not knowing what's happening on the outside. Is anyone coming for him? He didn't know. And the external difficulties and torment started to get to his heart. And he thought, oh, maybe this is a sign that God is forsaken me. Uh, forsaken me. Forsaking me. <laughs> and God has left me. Maybe I'm going to die here, lonely and afraid in this foreign land. And <clears throat> it was only in hindsight that he was able to see that God had been with him all along. It was only like years after he was able to look at it and be like, oh, actually, because of my being in the prison, I had favor with the, wards, the wardens and I had favor with the people in the prison. I was able to share the gospel and people were saved. And so it was only in hindsight that he was able to understand that God had been with him all along and God had been changing his situation or changing him from the inside out. And so... In Ezekiel, as Ine read, God has been telling his people how he plans to move on their behalf. Right. So, from verse 1 to 23, we read about how God is going to move on the outside. Um, and he says to them, I actually put it up. In the Message Bible, I love it. It says here, because nations came at you from all sides, ripping and plundering, hauling pieces of you every which way. And you've become the butt of cheap gossip and, <laughs> and jokes, right? God is saying to them, like, you've become the lowest of lows amongst the other nations. And can you imagine the people gathered as Ezekiel is saying this to them? They're all like, yeah, man, that, that's right, that's right. We've become the butt of cheap jokes. It's true. And then he says to them that God is planning to restore the land, it will produce fruit. It will burst with new growth. And they're all like, ooh, yeah, that's right. Say it again, brother. Whatever. And um, and then he, and again, he, he brings up all these other promises. And he's like, the country will burst into life, life, and more life. And the towns and villages will be full of people. And they're like, come on, somebody. This is a word for us. Right? So they're, they're pretty excited. And he says to them, the town will overflow with livestock And they're like, yeah, say it louder for the people at the back. This is a word for us. This is a word for our salvation. And so they get so excited because God is telling them about all these outward signs of his favor on them. And then, it's almost like the record scratches, right? Because in verse 25 and 27, he changes tone. And he's no longer telling them About what he's going to do on the outside, he tells them how he's going to change them from the inside. Not only is God wanting to bless them outwardly, but he wants to produce a lasting change. And the only way he can do that is by changing them from the inside. And so that is the story of Ezekiel. And it's not just for Ezekiel, because this is a prophecy that extends beyond the people of Israel. So even, it stands for the people 500 years ago, but it stands for us today. And I want to to share with you how. God has a three-step plan on how he wants to do his extreme makeover. He wants to cleanse the people, which is us too. He wants to renew, and he wants to live in us. So he wants to cleanse, he wants to renew, and he wants to live in us. And the first one is cleansing. In verse 25, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean, uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So God had a plan to wash his people from their uncleanliness and their idol worship, and he uses symbols that they would have known. So under the law, if the priests were performing a duty, or if someone was really sick, the cleanest person would have to mix in the blood of an animal and water, and they would sprinkle it on the others to make sure they were clean. So They would mix this blood and water. Can you imagine either being the one who's sprinkling or the one who's being sprinkled on? Kind of a little bit gross to think about, but that's that's what it was. That's how it looked in the Old Testament. And so the people um, who are reading, well, us, the people reading the Bible, we know the end of the story already, and we know that no one here could have been clean enough or holy enough to cleanse us of our sin. So imagine if we're sitting here, the cleanest person in here would have to mix the blood and the water and sprinkle it on the rest of us. Who would we choose? What would be our qualification for choosing them? All right, there was no one who could have done that job except for Jesus. So in Hebrews 9, it says this. If you can read it, (laughs) this is the Message Bible. But when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place, once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood Instead, using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from those dead ends. dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. So Christ himself went in, and he gave himself as a sacrifice so that once and for all we're set free. And, you know, the second part of it speaks of idols, right? And he says, I'll cleanse you from your idols. And for a lot of us, that kind of seems like something that's far out. And if you've traveled to maybe Vietnam or Thailand, Bali, um, you've seen the statues right, in gold and marble and stone on mountaintops, outside people's homes, or even in miniature ver- versions, um, outside storefronts or around net, in people's pockets. And sometimes the concept of an idol seems like something outside of us, outside of our Western But this is what Tim Keller has to say about it, about idols. It's a very long quote, and I'm really sorry. But I will read it for you. If you can read, please do. And he says, everybody has got to live for something. But Jesus is arguing that if he is not that thing, it will fail you. Nobody puts this better than the American writer, David Foster Wallace. He got to the top of his profession. He was an award winning, best selling postmodern novelist known around the world for his boundary pushing storytelling. He once wrote a sentence that was more than 1,000 words long. I don't know how you do that. A few years before the end of his life, he gave a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. He said to the graduation class Everyone worships. The only choice. get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty Sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will need even more power over others to numb you of your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid. Fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, it is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Wallace was by no means a religious person, but he understood that everyone worships. Everyone trusts in something that requires faith. A couple of years after giving that speech, Wallace killed himself. And this non-religious man's parting words to us are pretty terrifying. Something will eat you alive. Because even though you might never call it worship, you can be absolutely sure that you are worshiping and you are seeking. And Jesus says, unless you worship me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you are trying to get your spiritual uh, thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see that the solution must come inside rather than just pass by outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. And so I read this and immediately, you know, started to think, what is it that I could be worshiping? And um, and I just thought of this, that every morning I wake up, and I'm usually half blind. I don't know if that's just me, but
1: I wake up and I... Think
0: wash clean my eyes and then when I look in the mirror right, then I recognize oh, I'm a mess right, and I think that's what Jesus is saying to you that he is that water that washes us clean, that washes our eyes clean so that not only do we see that we are a mess, but that we see him more than anything Jesus is cleansing us so we can see him so we can see that He is greater, and He is the only one who could free us from worshiping other things. And we can see that He is more beautiful than any other thing that we could worship. And the second thing was renewing. So we talked about cleansing. The second one, renewing. And um, God knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. And God is calling us to more than just sin management or behavior modification. I don't think that's what God is saying. He's not saying, look at all these idols, check off which ones you are doing, and then don't do that, right? He's calling us to a whole new life, a whole new heart. And he's saying that he wants to give us a heart transplant. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh, and give you Heart of flesh. He gives us a new heart and He wants to move us beyond being stone cold, um, having hearts that are stubborn, senseless, and prone to sin, but He wants to give us His heart, a heart like His. And I just thought of, like, you know, when you carry a little baby that's falling asleep, you naturally start to breathe the way they breathe, and you naturally. their heart pace. And I think that's what God is doing to us, drawing us closer and saying, if you lean in, I will make your heart feel like my heart. And I want to give you a heart that can, that can feel, that can enjoy, that can love me and love others. Um, and then, so we said God cleanses us. He renews us. And the last one is indwelling. He wants to live um, so in John 14, 16 to 17, Jesus says to his disciples, um, I will ask the Father, um, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it, ne- it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus gives us the spirit of truth to do God's work. We do God's work of believing, obeying, overcoming, growing, producing fruit. And we do this not by our power or our abilities, but by His Spirit. He promises that His Spirit will be the one that leads us in truth. His Spirit will make sure that we can keep His commandments. His Spirit will give us the desire to do what is right. And He will empower us. And all of these are part of the extreme makeover that God wants to do in our lives. He wants to cleanse us, renew us, and dwell in us. Um, and not just for the Israelites in 500 B.C., but through Jesus, these promises are for us. And I don't know if you noticed something, but of all three of these things, okay, being cleansed by Jesus' blood, it's a once and for all. So it's done. God doesn't need our help with that. He's done it. God's spirit is given to us when we accept Jesus as Lord and King. That's also a once and for all. No one can remove his spirit from us. It is done. But renewal, renewal is a constant process. I read a little bit about heart transplants. um, And uh, I found out that when you go for a heart transplant, it's necessary that you go for constant checkups. Because in some patients, the body uh, rejects the heart immediately, right? And then the doctors can kind of work around that sometimes. And the person can live. Like, it can, it can so happen that initially they reject it, but after some time, the body adjusts to having a new heart, and the person can continue to live and to thrive for many, many years. But in some people, they do the transplant. The person is okay. They leave the hospital, and they fail because the body does not accept the heart. And so it's um, it's imperative that the person has to go to the doctor and check how the heart is doing every every few weeks, every few days for a little bit until they can monitor that the heart is working well inside of them. And our heart of flesh that God gives us is the same. It needs constant tending. Uh, in the cleansing and indwelling process, we play spectator as God does all the work. But in the renewal process, we are partners with God, right? We go about, we, he shows us how our hearts need to be changing, and we allow him to do that work in us. And, I, and so many things threaten our hearts. On a daily basis, you know? Daily. <laughs> I mean, you just have to leave your house in the morning and you're up against anger and jealousy and greed and guilt and so many other things. And maybe it's not even that it's on a daily basis. Perhaps our hearts have been hardened, like the Israelites. We've been waiting for some things and we've been waiting a long time and we don't see God moving on our part. And waiting sucks. <laughs> or maybe we feel a little bit disappointed that, oh God, we were expecting that you would come through in this way, but you have Will you? Should I expect good things? And I think that even today, God is calling us to a place of um, inviting Him in and, and and examining where do our hearts stand. Are our hearts soft and fleshy? Are they able to understand and able to perceive how God is moving? Or are our hearts feeling a little bit hard? Where do we stand today? And um, so the other week, I actually had this problem. <laughs> I had this pain on the left side of my chest. And I wasn't sure, like, what is this? And, and so I was with Tiffany, like, oh, I have this pain. It's on the left side. Wait, is that where the heart is? I, I <laughs> yes, yeah, South African education may have failed me. But yeah, I was like, oh, that's the left. Is that where the heart is? And um, and luckily, it wasn't. It wasn't a heart issue. It probably was a, a digestion issue, surprisingly. Um, but I realized that we don't often check in on our hearts. Like, it's possible that people who die of a heart attack, it just happens out of nowhere because they haven't been checking their hearts. And so, with today's message, I'd like to encourage you to check on your heart. And I'd like us to just, I wanted us to take just a little bit of time, even if it was like five, two minutes, two minutes, and and just open ourselves up to what is God saying? Where are our hearts today? Are our hearts ready to move as God's heart is moving? Are we feeling a little bit hard? Is the hardness setting in and we haven't recognized it? Um, Yeah, so we'll just give it about two minutes.